0: Welcome to the Hollywood Raw Podcast. I am Dax Holt. Adam Glenn. Are you stay? How are you doing out in New York, buddy? I'm good, man. The streets are quiet, but it's good. I was moving around the, this weekend. I was like, maybe I'll get some people, you know, catch some people grocery shopping or run into CVS, Walgreens, Dwayne Reed. But it is a little bit of a ghost town, so it's it's a weird vibes. But we're hanging in there. Fortunately, I'm doing all right. I'm uh, I'm getting my residual checks, so it's uh, I'm able to stay afloat. <laughs> You know how That's are you, so Bud? I'm doing good, man. I, I can't
1: complain, other than I am trapped in my house with two children under the age of ten, and it's pretty miserable. <laughs> it's yeah. our, listen, you know what it comes down to? Homeschooling. My God, teachers deserve a billion dollars. This is not easy teaching children
0: every day, especially with like a room of twenty five of them, thirty of them. You know, it's there's a lot of people. I can't there. Imagine. There's a lot of. The attention, the energy—it's—I uh, don't—I I just can't—I couldn't do it. And I'm a certified I... teacher. <laughs> I went to school to be a teacher. I have a teaching degree. I could not do it. <laughs>
1: no, I couldn't do it. I don't know how these teachers do it. But uh, hey, we got a fun podcast today. Let's let's lighten it up in here because it's so sad and depressing around the world right now. We have a very big guest today. Who we went to a good school? Oh, yeah, exactly. Author of two insanely successful books that you may have heard of: "You'll Never Blue Ball in This Town Again" and "My Inappropriate Life." We have comedian, a very popular comedian, and the host of Juicy Scoop, Heather McDonald. How are you?
2: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
1: How are you doing? All hauled up in your house.
2: You know, it's um, it's fine. It's it's. I live in um. The San Fernando Valley, which I just basically say Calabasas, and then people think I'm richer. But um, <laughs> you know, we have really nice weather, and for the last five days, it's been raining. So it's kind of nice not having to like get up at. Wait, I normally wake up at six twenty to make the kids' food and get them off to school and all that. So so far, I it's been okay. I mean, having to cancel shows, and of course, you wake up stressed. But the actual sitting in my home, I feel really um, lucky. That my kids are also at an age that I don't have to worry about childcare for them if I have to leave because I have an office which I'll still be recording my podcast at. So um, I went to Ralph's today, our grocery store, and you know what? It was it was a it was an okay experience. The yeah. line was a half hour. I talked to this woman. Um, they put the ration the rations on the toilet paper, which I think <laughs> is important. Um, yeah. Sadly, tons of fruits and vegetables vegetables available just shows what a gross country we are that all the frozen foods is gone <laughs> and like mm-hmm. I understand why but like I literally went there for fresh fruits and vegetables because I'm like I want to kind of save my frozen stuff for when if in fact they ever do close the grocery stores so um no it was it was fine you know um I just it, I just I just wonder how long it's gonna last I think that's what everyone thinks like if it's a week or two I think it'll be okay if it goes really long then I think it's gonna get weird well, how is really this weird.
0: affecting your work? You know, uh, obviously you, you're a stand-up comedian. You're performing all around the country. I'm sure you've had some dates canceled. But in the entertainment business, how is, is it going to affect your industry, your
2: line of work? You know, it's really unfortunate because um, two weekends ago I had like a killer weekend in Palm Beach. And it was scary like to be doing the shows. But everyone kept coming and I had to do meet and greets. And I'd go right to my room and like scrub my hands. And I was just kind of like, you know, because the world was very different two weeks ago. And, you know, but the last night of my shows, there were three VIP tables that were then empty. Like those people bought tickets and was just like, we're not coming. So this coming up weekend, March 20th and 21st, I was supposed to be at Cobbs in San Francisco. And last week I was like seeing that people were canceling and they were getting a lot of shit for canceling. And I, so I called my agent and I'm like, do I look, is this going to hurt me with the clubs? If I cancel, I don't know what to do. The club holds 400 seats. I know I've sold more than 250 seats. I must have by now. And then he said, well, actually they knew this was coming. So they stopped selling at like 240 and were pushing people to other, you know, shows. And so he's like, so it's up to you. And I gave it one more day. And then I was like, no, let's uh, let's reschedule because I also didn't want to wait too long and then have no dates to make up this weekend at, at that club because I love that club in San Francisco. So we moved them to November twentieth or something like that, the weekend before Thanksgiving, which is really far off, but it's it's a great weekend to perform. And um, and all my people, but I have a different crowd than other comics do. I have like a really wonderful, classy, smart, uh, they tip very well. They're they're like they were all like relieved because they're the type of people, their moms that want that didn't want to go but didn't want to miss out. So they were all like, oh, okay, love you, had it, you know, I I other people got a lot of shit. And then the people that did perform this past weekend were getting shit. So it's like you couldn't really win in this. And, you know, so I kind of feel like by everyone just canceling or rescheduling is the way to go. Because then we're all on the same playing field almost you know it would be unfortunate if this was only like in one city but because it's so all over I think it's it's okay and it's fair
0: yeah it's uh it's tough I mean a lot of comedians are losing work and uh you know if they don't have any other side gigs you know especially you know I'm in New York there's a lot of comedians who still work during the day and those guys are just out of work for a month so it's really tough times for so many people um is it is it is it in well you grew up in the valley correct how it, exp, I'm from New York. Explain to me what the Valley vibe is like. Like, you know, the, the scene there, the people that hang out there, is it a Hollywood scene? Cause I got to imagine you get a little more bang for your buck out there. So there is a lot of, you know, personalities, celebrities, actors, musicians who live in the Valley and the Valley's changed, you know, now with, uh, what's it, uh, Calabasas and then the hidden, hidden Valley or hidden, Hidden Hills. Hidden Hills. That's like a popular place right now. So the the Valley's becoming the place.
2: I, so I grew up here. I bought the house next to my parents. My kids go to the same Catholic school I went to. My daughter went to the same all-girl Catholic high school I went to. So, you know, you think it's LA, everyone thinks they can't believe it, but like people do, are born and raised here. And um, you know, when I went to USC, people were very snobby about the Valley. They couldn't believe I lived in such a gross place. And I was like, well that's a fool and it's nice. I don't know what you're talking about. And then now of course, you know, it's not a shameful thing. It's a very expensive, beautiful homes. We have a Neiman Marcus and a Target in the same incredible Westfield Mall. I mean, it's just it's it's just like anything else. A lot of people like it more because there is more parking. It's less congested like a than like a West Hollywood um, so I live technically in Woodland Hills, South of Ventura Boulevard. So, you know, we back up to the Santa Monica mountains and, um, we have coyotes, but other than that, like it's, you know, I've always loved where I live. I'm proud, you know, um, like Brody Stevens, uh, God, rest just so used to say, eight, one, eight till I die. And I, you know, I like it and the vibe is pretty good. I mean, we have not had like anybody fighting over toilet paper, or anything like that. People are waiting in line, like really nicely. And, and helping each other and, you know, and all the schools are down. And it's kind of funny because you've seen those jokes of like, you know, our parents were asked to go to war and our kids are just asked to stay home and play video games. I mean, I have to tell you, I have two boys. They were really excited to hear the news. I'm sure. <laughs> Very excited. They're not are, are, sad are you, at are, all. I mean, they're because, like my son's homes- golf season is done. Like, I don't know if my other son's play is going to happen. Like, that part, I, th- I hope that that doesn't uh, like affect- that's that'll be OK if we come back in two weeks If we come back in a month, then all that stuff's gone, which then will affect, you know, people getting into college and things like that. So that sucks. Yeah. And are you playing homeschool mom right now? Well, his, you know, and I'm like, we have to go on the grade link and all that kind of stuff. With my one son, he wasn't doing like he was falling behind in homework anyway. So I'm kind of happy that he's home because now I'm going to make sure that he reads The Great Gatsby. And I'm going to told him I'm going to read it with him.
0: Heather, you went to USC. Um, when you go to USC, I feel like every single, you know, it's <laughs> everyone wants to be an actor in Hollywood. What is the vibe like at USC, especially like when you were there, when you were there?
2: When I was there, I it was the greatest time. I chose it because I read the book Less Than Zero and these people freaking partied and it was rich, fun people. And I'm not going to lie about it. That's turned me on. I came from an all-girl Catholic high school. I was ready to have some fun. I didn't want to go to Loyola Marymount. I wanted to like rip it with a big football team. I wanted a sorority life and it just sounded like a blast and it was a challenge to get into nothing like it was today, which makes so much sense. Because as I'd go back for James and things, my friends would say, can you believe that you need a 4.0 to get in now? And I'd be like, oh, I, wow, that's amazing. And I'd look around and everyone still looked just is cute and put together not that people with 4.0s are not as cute as people with 3.5s but i'm sorry i was just a little bit like wow then i'd come back five years later oh did you hear you need a 4.3 now to get in jesus really look around everyone still looks the same 4.7 i'm like holy shit you know and i of course would let my kids believe that i had a 4.7 to get in there but i was like wow this is well my kids will never get in there good it's expensive who cares So then when the scandal happened, I'm like, well, now it all freaking makes sense. This has been going on for 25 years. I mean, when I went there, yes, there were some people that were probably not as bright, but they were a fifth legacy. There was a building with their name on it. And I don't think anyone really had a problem with them going there because they weren't taking a spot from somebody else. They really weren't. I mean, it wasn't that incredibly hard to get into. With what went on now, I was really uh, shocked and really happy that it's been exposed because um, jokingly, and this is a joke, people, but it was like a, you know, it was a rich person on rich person crying. You know, it was like the richer people were screwing over the still rich people that had the advantage of getting their kid a tutor and all of this, but they still didn't have the 4.7 to get in. And then the person that was really rich what's 500,000 to them? You know, it's like, I think if someone, um, like Lori Loughlin, she gave 500,000, she's so wealthy that that's like maybe a thousand dollars to you or me. Well for a thousand dollars to know that your kid is going to get into the school that you want to visit on the weekends, you're like, all right, I can see why shady people went along with it. Um, but I'm so glad it's exposed because I think it's going to be really better for everybody that this can't go on anymore.
0: I agree, but this has been happening. This, USC is not the only school that's guilty of this. This has been happening forever, for the longest. I mean, I know a guy who took six years to graduate from the University of Miami, six years, got two DUIs, and then went to Harvard for his graduate, for his master's. And it's just like come on really like it's just you're right you're a hundred percent right I and I, I agree with you it's a rich person rich person crime did you see a lot of like celebrity kids at USC because I know like Patrick Schwarzenegger and not a lesson he's a lot younger but you know I feel like a lot of well <laughs> I know uh, a lot of celebrities kids go there you know it just feels like you just sent the USC
2: it was a very much a Southern California pride place to go. A lot of parents had met and married there. I mean, people were like, Oh, my dad was a beta. My mom was a DG and they, I'm from Newport and you had the sorority. The DGs were all from Newport. Um, the Thetas were all brunettes from Pasadena. Um, Alpha Phi and Gamma Phi were more of a mix, but they, they, we had the Valley vibe. Um, you know, it was, It was just a different time. And so it was was, and it was great. And there was a, a great alumni. It was very important. And if you wanted to live your life in Southern California, it was a great place to go because you're making these connections that will help you get jobs in Southern California after. So it really wasn't as Hollywood as it was later on. In fact, it was all about people being in business. Everybody wanted to be a commercial realtor, a real, you know, in commercial real estate or be a builder or, you know or business person or, you know, that's what the vibe was. Even though drama and film was a big deal, I don't think it was as big of a deal when I was there. At least that wasn't like the sorority fraternity group of people that I hung out. They they were like the stars. Like we had this magazine called 28th Street, which was this this the uh, the row. And like, oh my God, our pledge class got on the cover of 28th Street. Okay, now that means we're like hot. Like all of that part of it, really fun and that's like the movie I want to write is like from that era because it's very different. After I left and the, you know it turned into like the Greek world is really looked down upon and it wasn't as popular and then, now, now, then it became very popular again. Now it's like oh my God how could you know now it's a thing of exclusion so now I don't think it's as popular as it used to. You know it goes in um, like a, you know in social waves of what's popular or not.
0: Yeah, it's funny cuz the school itself is it's a beautiful campus surrounded by not the greatest neighborhood. So, do you hang out just within the campus or do you go to, you know, Sunset Boulevard, Bull- know, were you going to Sunset Boulevard and hang around that Hollywood scene, you know, or were you just stuck on campus? Well,
2: um in my day the party night was Thursday night. So, you and you could drink at the fraternity houses. So, you didn't have to go to a club. And then like Friday nights would be like the invite, so like we'd all get on a bus and we'd go to some hotel in Marina del Rey and have like a big party, and then Saturday would be like the boring night, like maybe you'd go on a date or something, or you just stay home, and that's kind of the way it worked. And occasionally we'd go to like the nightclubs and stuff, but um, no, we the bars that we'd go to was Nino, which was right down the street, and you you do stuff on campus for sure. Um, now this is really going to date myself. But throughout my life, whenever something great has happened, something horrible has overshadowed it. So when I graduated from USC, it was the riots. So everyone had to leave the L.A. riots. We had um, National Guard all over on the day of the graduation. You couldn't hear our speaker canceled. We couldn't have uh, you couldn't even hear your name being called because there were like Vietnam type helicopters overhead. And um, we had to leave the school a week before um with like police escorts to the 10 and then they were like if you want to come for back for graduation you can and some people just stayed in texas or whatever (laughs) that was the graduation so i'm like this is kind of nothing compared to that like this is okay you know like that was way that was terrifying and scary and and since then The surrounding area of the campus is definitely improved. It's gotten a lot wider, a lot more um, desirable housing for teachers and whatnot. I mean, like our Greek store was, you know, um, what do you call it? Looted. All that type of stuff happened. And so, um, you know, so it's it's much it's it's much better and more desirable now which is why so many people want to go there because it's it's really improved at that but it still was a little nook of gorgeousness but what it also taught me too back then is um we had we had escorts before any school did so if i was going to go to the library for my sorority house I would call the escort service and it would be free and they'd come pick me up and take me. And I never walked alone by myself when I started doing stand up at the at the comedy store. I'd see these other girls going to their car I'm like what are you doing you have to ask one of the guys to walk you. Like I learned how to be very conscious of my surroundings because I did go to a school in a scary area and for that I'm grateful because you know now every school has escort services and stuff. Yeah to have
0: that well when how did that your comedy transition start because you you got a degree and then you know your parents you know you probably feel like your parents probably want to look for a job but how did you get involved in stand-up how did that all go down
2: so um i i always knew i wanted to be a stand-up but growing up in la i was very jaded about how hard it was and you know how people were you know waiting tables trying for that big break and because i I liked school and I was a good student. My parents spent, uh, you know, full tuition. They, got, they paid full tuition for me at SC. I was like, oh, no, you know, I got to be like a businesswoman. But then as I got closer to graduation, my favorite thing to do was on Friday mornings after the big Thursday party night is everyone would come down to breakfast and I'd reenact the entire night. And I would act out every person and who got with who and like a full stand-up act. And people would be like, Oh my God, I did. I miss breakfast with Heather, you know? And I remember going, how do I make this a career? Cause this is the only thing I really like doing. And so, but I got a job right out of school so that I could pay for my apartment with my girlfriends in Brentwood. And after about eight months of that, eight or nine months of that job, they fired me cause I sucked at it. I was a buyer for a department store. And, um, and I had just started taking a comedy class, like, a. a a learning annex comedy class where it was like a six-week course and at the end you have a show and I always tell people I think that's a great way to get started in stand-up because there's a deadline you have to do it it's going to be a warm inviting room you've practiced an act you're not just winging it wasted like you know you you should practice it like a monologue so I had a really great first experience of doing stand up. And then I was like, all right, that's it. And then I started doing stand up. And then everybody would tell me, well, you can't start your stand up career in LA. You got to go somewhere else, like LA or Chicago. And I'm like, well, I'm not. You know, like I don't have the money to do that. And this is where I'm from. So, you know, because you'd get so much more stage time in those other cities. But I just made it work. And then I did uh, groundlings, the whole groundlings program at the same time as I was pursuing stand up, I was doing groundlings.
0: Yeah, for sure. And who, when you were at Groundlings, did you in your class, in your kind of not your just your general class, but you're coming up together, was there any names that you kind of came up with?
2: Uh Anna Gasteyer, Cheryl Hines, um Chris Parnell, uh, Will Forte. Wow. I know, I'm, I guess I'm sounding like a freaking loser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you do you ever run into these? They were like, so they were like the way the sunday show worked is you do it 6 minute 6 month intervals and at one point we were either in like level 4 together which is right before sunday show or they got chosen you know and then i stayed in, i stayed the longest time cuz that the, the other thing that's really weird about the growlings which i don't know why they don't change this is if there's 30 people in the main company one has to leave and give up their spot in order for someone to come in so at one point there were 18 people in the sunday show and they kept us for 2 years and all these people in um, in the main company, there were about seven of them that were currently on Saturday Night Live, and they would not give up their spot in the groundlings.
1: Interesting.
2: Because they thought if this doesn't work out, I won't be able to perform Friday night for ninety nine people on Melrose. I can't give it up.
0: <laughs> but wouldn't you? Th- yeah, wouldn't you think you have the credits though? If you if you're on SNL, wouldn't they think that like, if you have credits, do you get kind of? Can you be anywhere you want? Can you? Do you have a little bit more say? Yeah.
2: People were classy about it. I remember my teacher was Lisa Kudrow and she was on mad about you guest starring. And she goes, I'm going to give up my spot in the groundlings because I got this pilot. And I go, what's the pilot about? She goes, it's about a bunch of friends living in New York. And I was like, mm, I don't know, Lisa, you want to give up that spot at the groundlings? <laughs> you know, but thank God she was like, Hey, if this doesn't work out, I'm a working actor. Let me give the spot up to someone else. That's what a normal Classy person did. But there were other people that were on SNL for two and three years who kept their spot. So the year that I got booted from the Sunday show, they only let one person in, and nine of us got the boot. Wow. But it was okay, because I'd already had a writing job working on the Keenover Wayne show, and I was like, and sometimes that's good, because you get, it becomes too incestuous, and it becomes your whole world. And like, now when I go over to see a show, I'm like, God, I can't believe this is only 99 seats. Like, this was my whole world. And I'm like, here we had a cast of 18, and we still couldn't even fill this joint. Like, what the hell? You know, but it was a great time and uh, really fun. And uh, I highly recommend the program to anyone.
1: Do you still run into any of these people that you kind of came up with? Do you run into, like, Alisa Kudrow? Do you run into
2: Will? Oh, yeah. When I, I, I ran into Alisa Kudrow, like, at a talk show. She, we were both on it together. And I love her so much, and she grew up in my area and when I saw her, I, like, burst into tears because I remember when she, she taught, like, level two to, and moved you up to level three. And at the time, I remember exactly where I was when she called me and she goes, you just get it. Not everybody gets it. You get comedy. You're going to do great. And it was so encouraging. So when I saw her, I just, like, cried. Because I was like, you encouraged me. and she was like, oh, you know. So she's she was always really great and um smart and nice. And then like I just had um Alex Cap, who was on a lot of sitcoms, and she was in a documentary about the Preppy murder case, um, which I love to do stories like that on my podcast. And I remember I actually sold her a house because my job was being I was a realtor instead of being like a bartender. I was a realtor as I was trying to make it in this business. And so what was kind of cool is anybody that got a sitcom or something in the growling, they would they would let me find them a house. So she had a show on CBS or something, and I sold her and her husband a house. And when I was doing it, she's like, oh, we can't put it in my name because I dated Richard Chambers, the preppy murderer. And I was like, what? And so then when this documentary came out, I immediately reached out to her and she was on it. So then she came in and and shared her story, which was super juicy. Um, You know, I, I occasionally... I just had Chris Kattan on my podcast. So, yeah, it's it's a great little – it's like its own little college, really, with its own alumni, and people are really supportive of each other. That's
0: amazing. But then you worked with Keenan Ivory Wayans. How did that come about? How did you start working with him?
2: Total traditional way. You know, he had a late-night talk show.
0: Good show, by the way. I enjoyed that show. It
2: lasted like a year. He said, um, do you want to apply – to be a writer on the Keen Everween show. And I knew that it was Writers Guild, and I knew how much a Writers Guild weekly show would pay. And I said, all right, you know, what do I have to do? You have to come up with the commercial parody of this or that, a monologue joke. And, you know, I, we didn't have the luxury, like you do today, where I could watch every show and really get a vibe. Like, I was like, okay, let me just watch it for the next three nights in real time on TV to get a vibe for their type of point of view. And I remember I stayed home Memorial Day weekend and I had some really good parties to go to. And I stayed home and I came up with all this material and typed it up and submitted it just like anybody else. And then I had a meeting with him and then I got chosen. And um, But, you know, he was looking to add a white female voice to the writers room, which is why I always say it's so important to have diversity in the writers room because, I was the recipient of that, you know, that helped me get my first job and um, because he had a bunch of white guys and he had a bunch of black guys and he had one other black woman who I'm still friendly with today. And so it was like, oh, and so then out of all the white women, I guess, that (laughs) submitted the stuff, he felt I got the his point of view the best. And um, but it I was only 27. Realize like what a coveted writer's guild job that was because I still wanted to be on a sitcom, you know. So, I after that show ended, I didn't like really, I wasn't really staffed again. I still pursued acting and got some pilots and got something here and there. And one year I'd get my SAG insurance, and one year I wouldn't. And then I got married. And then, not until um, like maybe a year before I got Chelsea Lately, I had stopped doing stand up for all these years because my kids were little and. And I just didn't feel like going to the improv and I didn't really miss it, but I was still like getting acting jobs. And then I um and then I started doing stand-up again. And then when I heard Chelsea was gonna have a late night show, then I did the same thing. I reached out and I was like, what do you need? Can I submit a package? And I thought to myself, if I could write for um a black man, I can write for a white funny girl. So like I knew her act, so it was easy for me to write her point of view. Which was similar to mine, but different. And, and um, so then, and then I, that show happened, and then that was amazing. That was a really fun. Seven and a half years. Did
1: you know her before the show started then, or you just reached out because you had heard of? her? You no, know, we
2: knew each other. We were friendly. And we'd see each other out, but we we like I didn't have her phone number. I'd get that from someone else. And then and then she just you know kind of explained what the show was in a text, and gave me like the actual person to submit to like the actual EP. And then I met with the EP and then, you know, got the call and thought, okay, well this will last for 13 weeks, but at least as a mom in my early thirties, I have now like a fresh credit. And so I really, you know, it sounds like how everyone wins an Oscar. We never thought this little movie, but like, I really didn't think like this show was going to be anything, but like a short lived series. And so then when it became, and one of the reasons that really helped us, which, um, was the writer's guild started and we were not writer's guild, so we were like the only late night show on TV for like a couple months that wasn't reruns. And I really think that helped along with a lot of other things, of course, her talent and just that the show was different. But I think that really helped launch like people finding it and falling in love with it and then sticking with it. And um, so with all these shows closing right now, it's unfortunate that, you know, one or two can't remain because I think that they would find that it would help them stick, you know? Yeah. If, if you're the only new show on TV doing topical stuff, it is really helpful. How
0: was the... How many writers was there, were there for the show, for Chelsea?
2: Oh, not many at all. We had maybe like... Maybe like six and then three... and Six plus like the three EPs that would help... Um, right as well. And then Chelsea,
0: I mean, it was a pretty easy. And and again, you know, better than I do, but I would think it was a very easy show to shoot because six writers, you kind of make a show, you talk about topics that go on that day. You just want to make Chelsea look good and make her funny. And then hopefully the, the panel has, it brings their own jokes, correct?
2: Yes. Yes. So if, um, You know, several of us, most of us, uh, of of the writers, also appeared on the show. So first we would come up with the topics, everyone would pitch a topic, and then we'd all tell jokes on the topic, and then one person would kind of be in charge of writing up those jokes and punching up those jokes. And that, like, like, maybe my topic would be about, you know, Britney Spears or whatever. And I'd write a few extras, and then she would choose her jokes from that, and she was also always off the cuff and everything so it's not like she was like you know but she kind of like okay and then you know but sometimes we'd pitch pitch a joke in the room and she'd be like well aren't you on the show today yeah why don't you say that for yourself you know so it'd be a little bit like that but then after you write the stuff for Chelsea then you'd kind of think about your own point of view as a writer that's going to appear on the show but we only appeared on the show like once every three weeks or something, and but they read other people like a Joe Coy. He would come in, he'd get the topics, and he'd run his jokes through a producer. But we never knew the people on the panel, including Chelsea. We never knew what each other was going to say.
0: So that's what made it fun, yeah.
2: That's what made it fun. And then they'd say, "Look, if someone says what you're going to say, that's why you have to have three backup jokes because you'll look really lame if you still say your same joke. <laughs> it'll, it'll be obvious that a you weren't listening." And that you were too prepared. So you wanted to be prepared in the sense like, all right, I have these three jokes, but not like so memorized or so. But it was definitely a a, a joke driven show. Like you you were hitting it hard and you wanted to hit it hard and you only had a few, you know, maybe 10 minutes to to get for that segment. And so you went in your your few jokes.
1: When Was there anyone that appeared on the show, a guest that like really just like surprised you? Like you didn't, you didn't think they were going to be funny and they came on and just like blew you away.
2: Um, you know, we, we had guest hosts and, and like Lindsay Lohan came and it was sort of, you know, she's been, you know, troubled for a while, but it was, you know, we'd made so much fun of her for so many years. And then she was a guest and she was like a total delight and was really funny. Um, so then that, that was like a surprise. Um,
1: did you feel bad because we had a similar experience because I used to work at TMZ for so long and we made, I mean, come on. It was, her life was crazy. And then she came in once and I was like, oh my God, this girl is so nice. And she was actually, she did like a, an April fool's joke with us and she pulled it off and she was wonderful. And I was like, man, we've been like pretty brutal to this girl. And she was wonderful.
2: (laughs) I think she had a good attitude and like, this is life and I want to, you know, who cares? And so, you know, um, yes, yeah, she, so she was great. And, you know, like on it, wasn't like she was late or anything. Um, no, everybody was really great. You know, when people ask me, like, who wasn't, you know, who was difficult or whatever, I'm like, listen, they, they were doing a talk show and, you know, a car picked them up and of course, they're going to be delightful. Of course, they're going to be nice to the person that's interviewing them. You know, it's like. No, everybody was always, if they agreed to do the show, they knew what the show was about, and they were down, and they were, I mean, I don't remember one person, like, being an asshole or anything.
0: How was E! though? Was the network very on your side? Were they difficult to, you know, be creative with, or did they have a lot of creative control?
2: in the beginning, yes, and then really none at all. And I thought they were great. Yeah, I always thought it was really great. I was not an EP, so I wasn't dealing with them on a daily basis, like getting things cleared or whatnot. And sure there's sometimes there'd be something that we wanted to do that then standards and practices would say no, but for the most part I think we got away with so much and we were always in a different building. So from the very beginning, you know, first we were on this um this building on the west side, not near the or not in West L.A., and then the next was Universal, so they'd occasionally come around, but it was always really great, that's why it was unfortunate when the show ended and e the executives really were pissed at, you know, people like me and other, um, you know, they didn't want anything to do with us, as if we had something to do with the show ending, which we didn't, we were just writers, you know, we didn't have anything to do with contractual stuff or whatever, but uh, no, no. It was great. I felt like we had so much. Fun. I mean, you know, the stuff that we got away with, we could never get away with today, like with the social climate sure. of today. And then you guys did after
0: Chelsea. Um, what after? Yeah, after. Uh, what was the vibe like with that? Was Was it competitive because everyone wants to be on the show, or was it kind of like a very easy show to create? Because it seemed very like quick. It seemed like just kind of made it very fast. But was there a lot of Prep for that show? It was,
2: first of all, it was really fun. And it came from the idea that we would just have so many funny things because we were so really socially interacted with each other. We really were good friends. We really did go on vacations together. That we, the writers would come back and we'd tell some crazy story of what happened, or we all went and did a stand up show together on the road. And so then we were like, God, this should be a show, like Curb Your Enthusiasm. This so, so they put it together, and they pitched it, and their the network was like, okay. And so then we had like a different set of writers, only like three or four people. And we sort of like went into them almost like therapy and like told a bunch of stories that happened. And then they kind of put together loosely the ABC story of each episode. So sometimes something that happened to me, they'd be like, you know what, we're going to make this like all four guys went to do this because, you know, and sometimes I'd be like, oh, okay. You know, it was fine because then they'd give me something so funny. And we were all exaggerated versions of ourself. You know, like they made me all the, the I'm obsessed with the Kardashians and the fake. No, it's like, I knew them. We were friends before we were both on TV. I'm not, I don't care about any, you know, I'm not starstruck by anybody, but like that was kind of my persona to, elevate just like a curb, you know, just exactly that was the most it was like or curb or an office type of show. So um it was really fun. The only thing is we had to film it like after we we literally filmed it after we did, you know, a, a show that day. So we do the whole show that day and then at five o'clock we'd start getting into some makeup and then we'd film to like midnight. And then you still had to come back the next day at 8 30 And come up with topics and a cold open and all that, and that's Mm -hmm. during those times, which wasn't all the time, but it'd be like a two month period. That was like rough. That was rough, and it was, it wasn't a bright way to do it, you know. But it was a lot about be. I don't know why they did it that way. They did it that way, but we're all happy to do it and happy to be on TV. So.
0: You know, what is your relationship right now currently with Chelsea? You know, I know there was some stuff going on before thinking and I guess she said that you might have gave some stories to the tabloids and you spoke on your behalf. Um, but do you guys have a relationship currently or no?
2: Um, well, we did see each other at Chewy's funeral and it was really great. It was like it was 2010 again. Uh, you know, I'm not the only person that she hadn't talked to for years at that point. So there was, you know there was awkwardness with several of people we've all kept in touch but it was all really great I think everybody's just like moved on everyone's doing so well and everyone's really grateful for the time that we had with each other and um yeah but I'll say it over and over again I've never sold a story to a tablet in my life and I you know and, and hopefully people are listening to this and don't even know what we're talking about but if you want to go look it up I've never made money off telling stories about any single person at all in my life would never do it. And so that was like an unfortunate turn of events. Um, but it's all fine. We were totally good and I'm happy, you know, I'm happy that where everybody's life is and we're all like wishing each other the best. And it was a really, it was a cool night to uh, celebrate his life like that t- together. It's
0: crazy. I still can't, I, it's still hard to think about that Chewie's no longer with us. It's uh, it, its just, it's so bizarre. And I know he was just such a staple of the show and especially for you guys who work so closely with him every day and he had such a good personality. He was fun. He was such a great guy.
2: He was really sweet and down for everything. And, you know, it was interesting because, you know, that wasn't initially the her thought to have you know, someone like Chewie be the sidekick. In fact, you know, it was going to be somebody else. And then um, that person uh, had to work that day. And they're like, I know another little person for a sketch. And so she did a sketch with Chewie. And then in developing the show is when they were like, we should, what if you had Chewie? And it just worked out so great. The timing, their relationship um you know we would give him jokes and he was great at delivering every joke he just he never bombed and uh you know and he was and he was down with it for everything but you know he was older he did have health issues and um but it still was very sudden and it was unfortunate because it happened in mexico and i of course there's some of us that are like oh if he was in la i wonder if um you know he would have recovered but whatever it you know it it was sad but his family was there and everything and that was nice too
1: i got to imagine though um with people at his memorial there was probably a lot of funny people in the room telling some really funny stories about him because i know that a lot of funerals i've gone to everyone tries to lighten the mood and tell all these good things was it a pretty funny memorial at the same time as it being sad
2: it was so it was hilarious i mean it was so funny like chelsea told a story i told a story you know, several stories, I, I have a good memory for things. So like I could, I was like reminding people of stuff and then, um, you know, Brad Wallach was there and, and Tom Brunel, I mean, every, you know, Chris Frenchola and everybody, a lot of people were there. And then the people that you didn't see on camera were there too, you know? And, um, and then, yeah, there were still, you know, sad moments of people that were like, you know, his real friends and stuff that, you know, not real friends, but I mean, non-famous friends. And um, not that we're that famous. Whatever, I can't say this right (laughs) with it. So I'm probably picking it apart. But it it was really great. And I mean, unfortunately, a lot of us hadn't seen each other since we celebrated Brody Stevens um, Memorial at the Comedy Store. If you don't know who he is, he was a really great comic, um, really funny, a comics comic, you know, just would make you pee in your pants with the way he was. And he was our warm up act for the audience for many years. And he suffered with depression and took his life like a, over a year ago. So we all went to the comedy store for that. And there were lots of very, very sad moments, you know. And then there were some really funny ones too when some of the comics got up. So I, I think that just happens, you know. Comedy is, <laughs> you know, a lot of tragic people. So they can make something funny out of the darkest moments.
0: For sure. And I, I, I got it. We got to talk about a story though. You were. I was just reading in page six about this lawsuit that you. I wouldn't say. I guess you won. It was thrown out. That was against you. Uh, can you? Can you? Can you speak about this lawsuit with uh, Jim Bellino? Yeah, that's insane story, Dax. You know about this story?
1: Yeah, I was reading about it. It's basically you were you were doing your podcast with uh, Shannon and Tamara, right, from Real Housewives. Tamara. Tam-
2: Tam- Shannon Tam- and Tam- I'm sorry, Tamara. Tam- Real
1: Housewives. O-C. And you guys started talking. Okay, actually, you just fill us in because I'm sure that you'll do a much better job. (laughs)
2: So, in June of 2018, I've always done the Irvine Improv. It was the second or third live Juicy Scoop podcast that I had done there. And um, so I, you know, I I fashioned my podcast, you know, much like a lot of talk shows, hot topics, and then like an interview. And so I had. The comedians on and then I had Shannon and Tamra on and two days before that podcast that we taped on that Sunday Jim Bellino who was a on The Real Housewife for like four seasons with his wife Alexis Bellino he had had filed for divorce against her and it was on TMZ and Radar Online and several other outlets and one of the outlets I believe was Radar Online really got into the court papers and said that he um, was also asking for spousal support. So as someone who'd watched the show, as many, my entire audience, because it was, you know, Housewives-driven show, um, I thought it was very interesting because in the in the show that we all saw, which was their real lives, they were super Christian, and he, there was a se- several scenes where he's like, my wife shouldn't work, and she was trying to be like a correspondent for the local TV show. So I kind of was like, don't you think it's weird that he's asking for spousal support when we all saw that he didn't want his wife to work and she's not on the show. So I'm just kind of curious what kind of career she has in which she would be giving spousal support. So a discussion happened um, and they they answered my question. And this was live at a comedy club, you know, with a two drink minimum at night. And uh, we were just talking about a TMZ article and he then, Went after them and sued both of them, and then like a week before that year was going to expire, that he sued me for one million, all for defamation, and oh, so oh. we had to hire an attorney, a great attorney named Jeff Lewis, no relation to Jeff Lewis, the, the um, flipping out guy, but Jeff Lewis out here in Palos Verdes. and um, mm-hmm. you know, and and fought it and wrote seven hundred pages of material of why the my First Amendment rights are protected um that being you know that he's a public figure being one that you can talk about the news that it's a you know also the context being that it's a comedy club and um several other factors and we asked for it to be dismissed and it was he has filed an appeal and um i say great take it to the supreme court you know like what we got by this ruling is that now You know, no one had ever had a case against a podcaster for First Amendment rights. And because it's such a new medium. But, you know, there's certain things that you do. Like if in the L.A. Times someone wrote something that someone felt was untrue. Let's say I said you were 45 and you're like, no, I'm 32. Then you write me a letter. Can you please retract that? And then I would say, oh, there was a mistake made. He's really only 32. Don't mean to ruin his career by saying he's 43. Whatever. You have that option. First of all I, I I never was told to remove anything. I removed it within hours. It was not no one it was not available to anybody after that and um but that I just chose to do that on my own because I was feeling like oh, there was some concern, but I never heard from them. So there was all, all those kind of things that factor into it, but by making it a ruling for a podcaster now a podcaster is seen as you know, a television show, you know, the newspaper that's printed, terrestrial radio. And that's why this decision is so important for the millions of podcasters out there, because there was no precedent before. And I was like, if I don't win this, good fucking luck to the rest of you. You know, like, yeah. get ready, because how can it be that we can't discuss? So it, it says to gather and discuss news. Which is
1: what I was doing. Well, number one, thank you. Uh being a podcaster, thank you. <laughs> number two, I it's it's kind of funny. Like I when I read it the first time, I thought, how can he go after her when this was in a lawsuit? Like he's the one asking for spousal support. How can that be something that you could go after someone for defamation? Like it, it almost made no sense. It was a very you know, silly lawsuit. In the my thing
2: mind. is any that's that's why we did the anti-slap lawsuit, which is basically saying this is, you know, a frivolous lawsuit. You can't, you know, how it's not right that you even went after me. But what people don't realize, uh, because I've never been sued before in my life, um, some people, this type of stuff doesn't stress them out. It's, they enjoy it. I don't. Um, it stressed me out. It, you know, was creatively debilitating. I think that, you know, create... I got anxiety um I'd been served several times you know because of the the girls being uh, sued then my own being served and you know and for a while I I didn't know if I was gonna be served while I filmed my stand-up special in Irvine because I'd seen in the news that he had filed the lawsuit against me but I hadn't been actually served and the way people you get served is you know someone has to walk up to you and go you Heather McDonald and um so it just, it's extremely stressful. And I'm still stressed about it. Like, you know, I'm still like, oh, you're asking me a question. And oh my God, I hope I'm not saying too much. You know, and that's so unfair because we live in America. It's First Amendment right. It's my story to tell. And this is, you know, how I make my living is being, you know, inter- an entertainer. I've had this podcast over five years. And when this came down, it was like, I didn't even know if I could go on. And I thought if someone didn't have, my, you know, support, like my husband who really took this on, found the attorney, researched it, helped me. If it was just some, you know, mom or younger person that had maybe been doing it for a few months, I think they took put down their mic and go, fuck it. This is too scary. I'm not doing this. And how, what a shame that would be when so many people have created such great entertainment and, and created so many great, um, you know careers for themselves in this medium you know especially for stand-up comics you know all of a sudden you're not on tv this was the only way that people knew that i was going to come to their town and do stand-up was through the podcast so it's a really important medium and and something that anyone can do and so i was like i gotta fight for this thing and i i did and you know um you know a few people are like thank you but a lot of people don't really care but that's the story of my life (laughs)
0: Did you feel confident when this was all going on that this was going to get thrown out or you'd had a chance of winning or what were your thoughts during the entire time?
2: My, my logical brain would tell me yes, but I also was like, this could take seven years and how much will this cost us? And then there'd be this other part of me that you just wake up at three in the morning and you just think of the worst case scenario and can just completely panic, you know? And, um, so that's why people really need to think twice when they go down a road of, of suing of how long it takes how emotionally draining it is how much it could cost them in the end if they don't you prevail um you know really think about it i mean i've had other situations in my business where i've had attorneys say we'd like to take on your case and i'm like uh, no not worth it i don't care i'll get through it i'm not if this goes on i'm not going to be able to be funny every day like i have to be funny every day i can't have these other elements stressing me out so you know but other people then go yeah I'll go for it and to each their own for me I I don't like this kind of um, situation I just want to be funny and do my gigs and entertain people and you know move move on
0: well you're doing that yeah
1: (laughs) have you talked to the other ladies since all of this went down
2: so um, you know when it did go down in these cases and my attorney attested to this and so did my sister who's a criminal defense attorney they really do encourage and insist that their clients don't talk to other people involved in the party of the lawsuit, me being one of them. So my understanding was that they were, they were advised not to communicate with me anymore. And so I respected that. And so, no, we have not talked um, for well over a year Um, through other parties. We've wished each other well, And, you know, like if I know if she's going to go do a show of a friend of mine, I'll be like, will you please let Tamara know I love her? And, you know, Mm. I'm going to cry. No, those things are like real. Like I was, you know, friends with these people for a long time and it was a great, you know, it was a great part of my business. And I think I'd still get people that will come on my show, but by having it, I know that that it was more of a struggle because people, some people I believe associated my show with like, oh, don't go on her show, you know, she'll get sued. And it's like, you know, um, John Oliver got sued too for a bit he did on his show, but HBO supported him. He has a big network with a lot of attorneys. And I don't think that he stressed about it much. And if this had happened and I said something on E, I would have been protected by the E lawyers. But as a podcaster, you're just a sole entity by yourself. Most of us, you know, and, um, so that's, that's why it's so important, you know? And I wish I, I wish it didn't happen to me. I wish it, I didn't have to be the person, but then I think on the bright side, like, yeah, this will be better for the world in the end, hopefully, you know? And,
1: uh, so so would you go back if you could and not do that night or still do it because you've made such a big stand?
2: Absolutely. I would never have done that night. Nobody needs to go through this. Um, but one you know, but once it is here, it's like, you know, I would still I still regret. It. you know I always say like to people, you know sometimes I guess everything happens for a reason and, and you maybe maybe in two years I'd say, no, I'm glad it worked out that way. When everybody's been paid back their legal fees, and everyone's thriving, then maybe I'll say, yeah, I'm glad I did it. But at this point, no, I'm still like, no, I, you know, it caused too much pain and stress. In everybody's life. But, you know, that's the thing. I had no no intention or awareness that this would ever happen. And I've done 450 episodes and none of this has ever happened. You know, it's the common denominator is the person that brought on the lawsuit. So it's like, but anybody can do that, you know, and it's like, that's what's scary. And that's what was intimidating, I think, to so many women in much more uh, you know, crazier crimes when it comes to Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein and things like that, that they didn't go further and speak up because they'd be um, threatening. I mean, Ronan Farrow was threatened. If you read his book, yeah, hundreds of times yeah. with defamation, trying to tell these victims stories. It's scary. Yeah. You get a letter from some billion dollar law firm and you will, you'll piss in your pants. Everyone will, you know, and you're like, well, I guess, you know, it's, and you don't know how much it's going to cost you or how long it's going to take so it is yeah. really it is really stressful
1: i know we've kept you way longer than we were supposed to and i appreciate your time and your your honesty and you know giving us a little in-depth look at your life um obviously your podcast is a huge hit so For people that aren't listening that would like to listen, where can they find it?
2: So Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald is obviously everywhere, you know, to listen to podcasts. Uh, Every Tuesday and Thursday is a new episode. I have an incredible Patreon following, which is really driven by the content that I put on there. And it's new content every Friday based on what tier you are. There's even more. Like I just put out a podcast yesterday and one on Sunday. So Patreon.com slash Juicy Scoop is also Great, especially when you're home and bored because there's no commercials or anything. And uh, that support's amazing. So, yeah, it's all there. And then HeatherMcDonald.net for when the world comes back, go see live comedy mm-hmm. and go see me along with it, with your other favorite comics.
0: Your favorite guest ever on your podcast was who?
2: Well, my favorite guest is my good friend Chris Frangiola just because he comes on a lot and he's going to be on tomorrow. But as far as, like, someone that just really um, – surprised me and I had fun with, oh my God. Um, trying to think who just like, oh, I just had Carol Radswell and she's a real Hello, house Carol. in New York and we're friendly anyway, but like, it's kind of great to have someone like her because, you know, she's not on the show anymore. She wasn't tiptoeing around anything. She answered a lot of questions. You know, she was very honest. Same with, I had, um, oh, who also told a lot was, Um, uh, Megan King Edmonds Um, you know it's just people that are interesting I had Corey Feldman a couple years ago and that was really a challenge you know now looking back and where he is now it's kind of like riveting you know what he was sort of hinting at and trying to tell me and trying to direct the interview towards a, a way that he wanted to go Um, So, yeah, I mean, I love having different authors. I had Denise Richards on. I have, you know, different comedians on that, you know, are are really interesting. And I have a female director coming in today to talk about her, like, life experience. So, you know, and then most of the shows are just, you know, escape and funny. But once in a while, I'll get something that's a little more in-depth, and I like that. And that's what's also great about doing your own show. There's nobody saying stick to the funny lady you know like if something's really juicy I want to talk about it or I want to cry on on the mic because that's the way I feel I do and that's why I love it so much
0: that's great you're doing a good job with it it's uh and I thank you for what you're doing for podcasts that's awesome and uh, look forward to seeing you back on the road soon hopefully sooner rather than later yes
2: absolutely so everyone stay clean and safe and uh and I appreciate this too I look forward to listening back at my exciting boys <laughs> <laughs> well stay healthy out there heather
0: okay cool take care wow she uh what a career she's had you know we first got to see her during the chelsea show but you know she was a young girl working for keenan ivory Wayne's as a writer you know acting teacher her improv teacher was lisa kudrow
1: i love the story of like um well i'm doing this like pilot for the show i guess it's like friends in new york <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Insane. Can you imagine? oh yeah yeah
1: Really fascinating insane, life, though. She's, a... she's done a lot. She's clearly had a lot of success. Um, you know, and it's you could tell she she, I mean, she got emotional over this lawsuit and her friends, because she, she can't talk to her friends. Imagine that. Like, you have two friends. You get wrapped up in a lawsuit. And now they, they are advised they can no longer talk to you. Like, that sucks, man. Oh, my gosh.
0: And it's just, you know, it's one of those things where – like she said, you know, if she was working for HBO or E at the time, E would just take care of it because they have some big lawyers. But they're going after her personally. and She's got nobody behind her. It's just her. It's a scary situation. So, you know, fortunately, she said she felt a little confident, but it was going to cost her a lot of money. I and mean, it did affect her career. People don't want to go on the podcast because they're afraid of being sued. So it, there's a lot of things that it could affect you, especially for someone who's she's got kids. She has a family. She's got to provide. It's, uh, but she's still young and she's still crushing it, you know, two huge, hugely successful books, you know, touring, sells out, uh, you know, comedy clubs around the country. Good for her. She worked for it. She works hard.
1: Well, another good podcast. Another good one, man.
0: If you're liking the show, (laughs) if you're liking the show like subscribe tell a friend help us out you could find me at at adam Glynn on instagram uh and whatever kind of social media outlet you can find dax at dax holt d-a-x-h-o-l-t hollywood roll podcast dax Thanks, thank buddy.
1: you Have a, a parkville media production